The following podcast is brought to you by Pathways Church. For more information, visit www.pathwayschurch.us. Thanks for joining us for this message from our weekend service. Every week we're hearing stories about how God is moving in people's lives. So if you have a story to share, email us at info at pathwayschurch.us. We'd love to hear from you about how God is working in your life. Well, I finally get to preach at Pathways Church. Wow. I don't know what it is. I spent 25 years at the Alliance Church, pastoring them. My son, uh, Brian's taken over. And I don't know what it is, but once I give you this title, Emeritus, all of a sudden I started getting invitations. I got to preach at Christ the Rock in the spring, and now I get to preach at the famous Pathways Church. Thank you. When I go back to the Alliance, they're going to want to bow down and touch me, I think. <laughs> wow. You got to preach there, Pastor? And I said this in the first service. I want to say it again. I was back in the green room, but uh, I really enjoyed the worship time. I love preaching in what I call a worship context where people are passionately and uh, authentically worshiping God. That helps me engage with God. And um, I felt drawn up in the presence of the Lord all morning. So thank you to the worship team and just thank you for that. Uh, I want to talk to you today about growing a heart for evangelism. That's the topic I've been given. And um, just being concerned and putting on our radar screen the people all around us that are far from God. And God's given us a responsibility, right? I'm going to talk about a different approach to this than is normally done. Most of the time, preachers talk about evangelism or sharing your faith. They, they go to the, and rightfully so, they go to the commands in Scripture, like uh, the Great Commission passage, which says, you know, go. Actually, the Greek word there is as you're going, it assumes you're going to go. As you're going, make disciples, make followers of all people, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. So it, we're supposed to make disciples. Every Christian, not just pastors. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5, God makes his appeal through us, through believers, be reconciled to God. We're called ambassadors. Lots of places in the Bible that explain very clearly that all Christians have a responsibility to evangelize people. And I know our world doesn't like that. It says you should keep your faith private, but, un but we don't follow the world and its orders. We follow our master who, who told us, who told us that you don't, you don't convert anybody. We don't convert anybody. But we are to be what? Light, salt. We are to spread this gospel message, the good news. How will they come to be saved unless someone is sent? Then they might have to hear. So someone, all of us, believers, have to do this. If we don't do it, who is going to do it? They're not going to get it from anything in the world today that's kind of hopeless, what's going on out there. And we've got good news. This is actually... I mean, the harvest is ripe, and it's good time to be an evangelist, to be somebody who shares with people the good news. 
But I'm going to go through a little different approach today. I'm not going to use any of those proof texts. What I'm going to do is actually show you the best illustration in the Bible of what not to do. If you want to be a faithful witness for Christ, do not follow this person's example. And, of course, that's the example of Jonah. Jonah is called by God to go to a specific people that he's very much concerned about and offer them hope and mercy. Share your faith with them in the only God. Jonah's a failure. Why? Because he's selfish, he's sinful, he's got a really bad attitude, he's prejudiced, he's uncaring, but God still chooses him. If anything, that should give you and I encouragement, right? There's hope for you and I. If God could do something through Jonah, he can do something through us. Now, let me give you a little background on what Jonah is called to. He's called to go and preach to what is called the great city of Nineveh. Here it is, Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go, this is God speaking, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, initially, that you know, you look at that and you think God's mad. He, really, that's not really showing God's anger. It's showing God's concern. Listen, if God's really upset with somebody, he's going to ignore them. But he doesn't ignore the Ninevites. He's going to actually do something because he cares about them. Now, let me tell you about, it's interesting that in the text there, it says God calls the city of Nineveh the great city of Nineveh. Let me tell you a little bit about what Nineveh was like back in the 8th century B.C. If you were to start out at one end of the city and go to the other end of the city, take you three days. That's how big it was. 600,000 people called it home. It, it would be today in modern-day Iraq, a place called Mosul. Mosul, remember that? I, ISIS was kicked out of there by the Kurds back in 2016. But at that time, Nineveh was a cosmopolitan city. And it was, it was the capital city of a rising empire called the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was a military machine. It was sweeping across the Middle East, and, and it became one of the greatest empires ever in human history. If today you marked its boundaries, it would include Iran, Iraq, Syria, Turkey, and even Kuwait. Assyria was on a rampage. It was eating up one nation after another, and it was the greatest threat to the Jewish people. It was the arch enemy of the Jews, much like in the context of what we're seeing right now on the news, Iran. But I that was just a small part of it. Jonah is a Jew. He's from just outside the city of Nazareth. You know Nazareth. He's a prophet. And he's called of God to preach originally to the northern kingdom of Israel. You know, the Israel had split into two kingdoms, Judah in the north, Israel in the south. And he's, and he's called to speak to the north, excuse me, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. He's, he's called to speak to the northern kingdom of Israel in 760 B.C. That's the time of King Jeroboam II, if you like that kind of stuff. So here's the picture. You got Jonah, who's a Jew, a prophet, 
And God calls him to go to the arch enemy of the Jews, a pagan militaristic nation. And he's saying, I want you to go to your enemy, preach who I am, preach repentance to those people. And that's how I'm going to show my loving concern. That seems odd to some people. Why would God send them a preacher if he cares about them? Well, God, that shouldn't surprise us. God often does that. He's done that throughout history. When God cares about people and they're hopeless, he sends them a preacher. People like Martin Luther or Calvin or Jonathan Edwards or even Billy Graham. God will send people a preacher to offer hope. So God's plan for the people of Nineveh is to send them a preacher and his name is Jonah. But Jonah has two big problems. Here's the first one. Here's the first one. His patriotism has gone too far. His patriotism goes too far. Let me explain again the scenario here. You have Israel. Next to Israel, you've got this place called Syria, like kind of northeast Syria. And then on the other side of Syria is Assyria, this big military machine. Now, what was happening at that time is Assyria is going against Syria. And this enabled Israel to go into Syria and capture land that it had lost. So actually, at this moment, Israel is sitting pretty. It's doing fine. It's prosperous. It's able to recapture some land from Syria. But Jonah is a thinking man. And he knows it's only going to be a few years. When Assyria gets done with Syria, they're going to be on our doorsteps. And he, he knows that. And that's why he says, I'm not going. Because Assyria is actually the problem we have. He understands the command of God. He understands the intention of God. He even understands the heart of God. But he doesn't agree with the plan of God. And his thinking is very obvious. Lord, let them die. Let them die for their wickedness. One of our enemies will be removed from the face of the earth. Everything will be good for my country, Israel. His patriotism is getting in the way of God's plan for the people of Assyria. Now, what, what actually, what Jonah doesn't realize is he's actually seeing it correctly. Eventually, Assyria will overrun Syria. They will come and they will overrun Israel. But even that, even that, dear friend, is going to show God's loving concern. Why? Because Israel is knee-deep in idolatry at the time. And God is going to show his loving concern for Israel by allowing one of their enemies to defeat them. And it will bring Israel to their knees and, and point them back in the direction of God. You know, if Jonah has his way, not only will that generation of Ninevites not be allowed to have any hope, but Israel would, will not be delivered from its idolatry. No matter what the plan looks like, God always has the right plan. Remember that when things are not going well in your life. He, sings, he sees things we can't see. So it's Jonah's patriotism here. That's problem number one. And what's wrong with his patriotism? It's a selfish patriotism. 
Now, let me hit the pause button here. There is a lot of our patriotism, if we're honest, that sometimes is selfish. Why do we love where we love? It's because, uh, why do we love the place we live in? It's because that's where we live. Why do we think the United States is the best country in the world? And it might be, but it's because it's the place we live. Jonah's problem is his eye is on the kingdom of Israel instead of on the kingdom of God. And that can happen to all of us. Listen, Christian, you and I, we are called other world people. We're supposed to be aliens in this world. Our kingdom is in heaven. And uh, sometimes our love for our own country can blind us to that fact. And we're not as concerned as we should be for God's plan in the world. So let, let me give you an example. I, I come from a, a group of churches called the Christian Missionary Alliance. The Christian Missionary Alliance was started in the late 1800s by a man by the name of Dr. A.B. Simpson. He was a Presbyterian pastor. Uh, pastored one of the largest uh, Presbyterian churches in New York City at that time. It's still there. 10th Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. And uh, he saw at that time hundreds of thousands of immigrants coming to New York. It's very true. I, I'm Italian-American. Many of those, many of my ancestors came through Ellis Island, and that's what was happening there. And in fact, his area there in Manhattan was the Italian quarter, and, and they didn't want to be associated with those kind of people. So they paid money, and they called them pew fees, and they, paid, they, they put a price on sitting in their church to keep those people out. And he saw this, and this really bothered him. And he says, you know, you want a nice pastor to pastor your church. My heart is to grow the kingdom and to, and to reach people who are lost. And so he left that prestigious pulpit for two reasons. Number one, to reach the masses of immigrants coming to New York. But secondly, he believed there was not enough going on in the world, particularly in places where there were no missionaries, unreached people groups. And so today... The Christian Missionary Alliance has 20,000 churches. You know how many are in the United States? Less than 2,000. 18,000 churches overseas. Why? Because that was our kind of our DNA. We're all about getting the gospel to people who are far from God in places all around the world and very, uh, very forsaken places that nobody wants to go into. Why do I say all of this? Well, because I have missionaries that have left my church that are right now in places that are not friendly to the United States of America. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying patriotism is wrong. I'm a very patriotic person. My wife will tell you. I'm in a ball game, and, and the jets and the helicopters are going over, and people are thousands. I'm watching thousands of people sing the national anthem. I'm tearing up. But my first allegiance is to the kingdom of God. And, and sometimes, sometimes what God is doing in the world doesn't match up the people who are friendly to the United States. Our patriotism can go too far as a believer. So Jonah is angry with God. And one reason is he doesn't want to preach to Nineveh because he knows exactly what's going to happen there. The God of grace and mercy is going to show mercy to them. So what he does is, he wants him, God wants him to go east. He's going to go west. In fact, he wants to go all the way to, at that time, Spain. He wants to go as far west as he can to the end of the world. 
because he wants to run away from God. Now, you know that doesn't work, right? I hope you realize that. Listen to me. If there's any of you right now that's trying to run away from God, you're going to run into him. That's exactly what happens. Whenever we try to run away from God, we run into him. Now, I don't have to tell you the rest of the story here because you know the story, right? Where do, what, what, what happens to Jonah? He gets swallowed by what? Big fish. Okay. Now, you and I probably, you've experienced the same thing I have. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of the representative. I'm emeritus now. So they have me representing the church in the community. So I'm on a lot of boards and I, I'm out there in the community. And I tell you what, I'd be a rich man every time somebody came up to me and go, you know, you're one of those Bible churches, right? Yeah. You, you believe in the Bible. Yeah. You don't believe in that Jonah story, do you? You don't believe that, that, that a big fish swallowed him. Yes, I do. Dennis, you're in, you seem to be an intelligent person. Why would you believe that? Well, because it's a miracle. Do you know what a miracle is, I ask? Do you know what a miracle is? A miracle, by definition, suspends natural law. It is supernatural. It suspends natural law for a moment or in an event. And I said, the problem is, we're not living in a period right now where, where, where God always does miracles, always. But we're not living in a period which, where God does public, universal, uh, supernatural miracles that everyone can see, that it's very clear. There are periods in church history where that happens. Certainly uh, in uh, the book of Exodus, uh, the prophets, uh, uh, the beginning of the, book, uh, the church in the book of Acts, and we're, we're coming up on, by the way, I think pretty soon on the next one, which is when? The time of the revelation. The whole world will see these catastrophic events that, and, and supernatural events before their eyes. Uh, people will be in Jerusalem, two witnesses, and they'll die and they'll be resurrected. They'll call fire from heaven. The whole world's going to see it. And people will be reminded again that God is a God of miracles. It's not a big deal for him to have a big fish swallow somebody and then have him spit up on a shoreline. And that's what happened to Jonah. You know the story. He ends up preaching. And sure enough, God shows great mercy and grace. Why? Why? Because the people repent. Even the king repents. Look at the verse here. Jonah began going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When it's a, whenever you see sackcloth, that's a time of mourning, of grief. And, and when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. He took off his royal robes. He covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink. But let the people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everybody call urgently on this God and let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with his compassion and turn from his fierce anger so, they will, so that we will not perish. Wow. The president gets up and says, we don't know this God. We need to know him. We need to respect him and we need to repent. 
What do you think Jonah does with that? He says, oh, praise God, praise God. Thank you, God, for relenting your, your judgment, which was, which was deserving here. Hallelujah. No, that's not what he does. And why? Why is his response not the right response? Answer, problem two. Problem one is patriotism goes too far. Problem two, his value system is entirely messed up. Chapter four, verse one. Let's look at the verse here. We got it? But to Jonah, this seemed what? Very wrong. He's not agreeing with this. And he became angry and he prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. I'm not sure, but I don't think there was a very good uh, profit retirement program at the time. Now, what do you think is going to happen when Jonah goes back to Israel with this great news? Hey, I went to Nineveh, the nation that's going to destroy us soon, and I gave them all this information about the God we love and serve. And guess what? God has shown mercy to them, and he's going to bless them. He knows what's going to happen. That's not going to be very popular. So he says, Lord, take my life. It'll be better for me to die than to go home and face my own people with this wonderful news from the mission field. I find it very interesting. We don't we didn't have time to look at it. But in chapter 2, Jonah is pleading to God to save his life in the belly of the fish. Now he wants God to take his life. And do you notice how God immediately cuts to the chase, cuts right to the issue in verse four. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? That's the key word, right, R-I-G-H-T. Now look up here. When you get angry, 99% of the time, it's because you feel your rights have been violated. Let me repeat that. When we get angry, it's because we feel a right we have has been violated. You got a husband, comes home from work. He's worked hard in a kind of messy job, and it's, it's difficult. He's making all these decisions, and he's, he's, he wants to come home. He wants to relax, and his wife, uh, wife's home, and maybe she came from her job too, or maybe she's a homemaker, and or she's been with the kids, and 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 whatever she wants to be in his world. So she says to him, "Tell me what happened during the day," and he brushes her off and is annoyed that she's even asking him. He's angry. I should have some time to myself here. I don't want to rehash the day, and she's hurt by that. And especially if she's been home with little kids, she said about maybe thirty-four words. He said seventy. 7,000 words, you know, she's just listening to baby talk all day, and she wants to have some adult conversation. Both can be angry. Why? 
because they feel their rights have been violated. It's okay to think I would like more affection. It's okay to say I, I would like more time. I would like more respect. But when you say I deserve more respect, I should have more affection. All the wills and the shoulds. Now you've set yourself up to have your rights violated. So here's the, here's the I believe, a tip to be less angry in life. I've used this, all, I use this all the time. I used it this week. I use it all the time. Whenever I find myself getting angry, I got to pause then and lower my rights. Uh, you know, I was a Christian. I became a Christian in 1980. I was 20, uh, 20 24 years old. I was uh, working in New York City on Wall Street. And uh, my brother Pete, four years younger, uh, uh, called me up and he shared the gospel with me. And I struggled for about three weeks. I was Roman Catholic, fourth degree Knights of Columbus. I lectured at the church on Sunday. I was Joe Roman Catholic. And uh, I struggled with this gospel now. This gospel is saying there's nothing I do to earn my salvation. And here I'm working my, my tail off to do good works uh, to get in. And this one is saying it really doesn't mean anything, even your religious works, that Jesus did it all at the cross. And so I wrestled with the gospel about three or four weeks, and I finally surrendered my life to Jesus Christ and was born again. And um, I, I remember... Uh, um, being angry at certain things, even though now I was a Christian. And uh, uh, the pastor's son, I was going to a Bible church. I started going to a Bible church that happened to be an Alliance church. And the pastor's son took note of me and said, Dan, um, would you like to spend some time with me? I know you come from a Catholic background. You probably didn't grow up reading the Bible. I know you got questions. And I thought, wow, this is great. I need somebody to help me with this. So, because I had a lot of questions. So we played, uh, he would come over to my house or my apartment and we would, we would play basketball and then we would read the Bible together and pray. He'd do this like once a week. He's over my house one day and I'm going, to, well, I'm going down the basement of my house and, the, and uh, uh, I, I remember like it was yesterday. And I'm, I remember, I don't know exactly what I was angry about, but I was angry about something and I'm whining about it. And this guy turns around, he looks at me, and he says, Dennis, don't you realize that when you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you gave up all your rights? You got no more rights. You follow the Lord, whatever he says to do. In fact, the Bible calls it doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S, you and I, we're slaves of Christ. That's why you, I pray sometimes I call him master. He's my master. Uh, look, I know slavery is a terrible thing, but I have no problem being a slave to Jesus Christ because he is someone who will love me like nobody else. I am a doulos. In fact, you know the translators, they don't accurately translate the word. In every almost every English translation, it's servant, 
That is wrong. And an honest translator will tell you that. The word is slave, is doulos. I am a doulos. And when I came to Christ, I gave up all my rights. You don't know how much that conversation has helped me to know I have no rights. And if, if you want to get less angry in your life, here's a tip, friend. Lower your expectation of what you think your rights are. Not if you follow Jesus. The more should, you know, I should get this. That's going to give you your problems. So that's where, that's where Jonah's at. That's why he's so angry. He feels he's got rights that have been violated by God. So God cuts right to the issue. Hey, Jonah, you got any right to be angry? And notice what Jonah does right after that in verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city, and there he made himself a shelter. He sat in its shade, and he waited to see what would happen to the city. You know what Jonah's doing? Jonah's saying, Lord, I'm going to sit here, and I'm going to wait for these people to screw up. They are. They're going to mess up. And when that happens, you're going to nail them, and I'm going to sit here and wait for it to happen. So I can go back to Israel and say, guess what? God and I, we took care of the Ninevites. This guy is a piece of work. And obviously, he doesn't do a good job building his shelter because there's holes in it. So it said, God, a couple, you know, this is a very important word. It said, God provides a vine to cover it up. And it, the text says Jonah liked it. You see, God is finally understanding that prophets need better care. Yeah. But in the morning, it says in verse 7 that God also provides a worm. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so it withered. He called 1,365,87 worm. You move in on that vine. Just like he has called mosquitoes to move in on you. And that's not all. Verse 8. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonathan's, Jonah's head so that he grew faint and he wanted to die. And he said, it'd be, again, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, Jonah, you've been concerned about this plant. You didn't tend it. You didn't make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not be concerned for this great city of Nineveh in which there's more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left and also many animals. He's saying there's people there. There's people there, Jonah. And I care about them. And you should too.
Joni, you got a right to be angry about that vine? I don't think so. You had nothing to do with it. I mean, here, here's the bottom line. God is trying to communicate to this man, you got a screwed up value system. Your value system is screwed up. If you, if you believe that you, you represent me, you belong to me, your personal agenda and comfort and care is more important than what I'm doing in the world. His value system is all messed up. Application. Three questions for you. Number one. What rights right now are you holding on to in your life that's causing you to get ticked off and angry? What rights? Number two, what might that all be saying about your value system right now? About what's really important in your life? And three, who might some people be around you that God, see, look, look, when you talk about evangelism, you don't need to go out and get more people to evangelize. They're all around you right now. You're just not looking. What are some people around you right now that God might be saying, should you not be concerned about them as well? Look, we all struggle with this. I don't care who you are as a believer. It is like, it is like natural tendency. It's default just to care about me and be, be involved in my life. It's all about my problems and not be other-centered. Jesus was the man for others. And if we're, listen, if we're going to claim to follow him and to know him, we got to get other-centered. I'll tell you what's helped me. I read, a, I read a poem. It's actually not a poem. It's called an apologia. It's kind of a capsule of somebody's life. And it's of the, a man by the name of Sam Schumacher, who was one of the founders of AA. And I read this thing once, twice a year, because, man, it just brings me right back to what God has called me to be and do. It's called I Stand by the Door, and I'm going to read it to you. I stand by the door. I neither go too far in nor, taste, nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It's the door through which people walk through when they find God. There's no use me going way inside and staying there when so many people are outside and they, as much as I, crave to know where that door is. And all that so, so many ever find is only a wall where the door ought to be. They, they kind of creep along the wall like blind people with outstretched groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing there must be a door, but they never find it. So I stand by the door. You know, you know the most tremendous thing in the world is for people to find that door. It's the door to God. And the most important thing any person can do is take hold of one of those blind and groping hands and put it on the latch. The latch that only clicks and opens to the person's own touch People die outside that door as starving beggars die on cold nights in cruel cities in the dead of winter, die for want of what is within their grasp. 
They live on the other side of it, live because they've not found it. Nothing else matters compared to helping them find it and open it and walk in and find him. So I stand by the door. Go in, great saints. Go all the way in. Go way down into the cavernous cellars and way up into the spacious attics. It's a vast and roomy house, this house where God is. Go into the deepest of hidden casements of withdrawal, of silence, of sainthood. Some must inhabit those inner rooms and know the depths and the heights of God and call outside to the rest of us how wonderful it is. Sometimes I even take a deeper look in. Sometimes I venture in a little farther. But my place seems closer to the opening. So I stand by the door. I admire the people who go way in, but I wish they would not forget how it was before they got in. Then they would be able to help the people who's not yet even found the door or the people who want to run away from God. You know, you can go in too deeply. You can stay in too long and forget the people outside the door. But as for me, I shall take my old accustomed place near enough to God to hear him and know he's there, but not so far from people and not to hear them. And remember that they are there too. Where? Outside the door. Thousands of them. Millions of them. But more important for me, one of them, two of them, ten of them, whose hands I am intended to put on the latch. So I stand by the door and I wait for those who seek it. Yes, I had rather be a doorkeeper. So I stand by the door. May that be your heart. Let's stand for closing prayer. Father, <clears throat> I have to confess to you, I don't know what these people are doing, but I got to confess to you that I've, ne <laughs> I've not had that heart sometimes. I've not had your heart for people. I've been so engulfed with, my, with me. I don't even look outside of me sometimes. And I repent of that. I ask your forgiveness of that. And I pray, God, the people right now that you have around me that I'm not paying attention to, I'm not paying attention to what you're doing and what you could do. I pray, God, that maybe this week, maybe this week, you'd point some of those people out to me. And I pray God will be available. We don't convert anybody. But just to be available. To be light and salt. To be an ambassador. To be interested in what's going on in their life. To maybe ask a question. And not look to download all this data we have. But just listen. And empathize. And, and open up. Build some sort of space. 
for us to be able to point them in your direction. God, I pray you would grow us in our evangelism. And now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than you could even ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within you, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And God's people said, Amen. God bless you.